Hi and welcome to your Over the Farm Gate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian and the CLA. I'm your host, Farmers Guardian news editor, Olivia Midgley. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. Subscribe through all your favourite platforms, whether that's Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Acast to ensure you stay up to date with new episodes. This week, we're talking standards and looking specifically at US production and ask how it differs to that of the UK, why Donald Trump is so keen to sign off the US-UK trade deal quickly, and when UK beef will be heading to the US. I've also been speaking to celebrity farmer and food campaigner Jimmy Doherty to ask if he thinks the government's promise of a Trade and Standards Commission is enough to allay fears about low-quality imports flowing into the UK and undermining British producers. And I'm pleased to say Jimmy's supporting this year's 24 Hours in Farming event, which takes place on August 6th, but more on that later. You're still ploughing on, and so are we. Get Farmer's Guardian delivered directly to your door every week and access the latest news from the world of agriculture 24-7 through fginsight.com. Simply subscribe to Farmer's Guardian Check out our latest deals at fginsight.com slash subscriptions today. Now, to give us more insight on the US-UK trade deal and the situation on the ground, I'm pleased to say we've got John Wilkes on the line, who is Farmers Guardian's man on the ground in Washington, D.C., as well as working as an advisor to AHDB on US agriculture, John also writes his View from the Hill column, which gives FG readers a glimpse into what's happening on the ground over the pond. So from Capitol Hill, welcome to Over the Farmgate, John. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Olivia. Nice to be with you all. Nice to be with you. It's great to have you here. And I know you're pretty close to the action in DC and you live just a short walk from the White House. What's it like over there at the moment, John? It's quietened down now, but obviously you probably watched in the news in the UK going back a couple of weeks ago during the, the Black Lives Matter protests. It became quite interesting, inverted commas here. Things have settled down now, that, but the virus here is an everyday threat for us and we have to be very careful about how we uh, you know, interact with people and just trying to keep safe, really. Yeah, and I know, I mean, we've heard here how there's, well, there's been a lot of stories, hasn't there, about how the virus has affected agriculture over there, various meat plants uh, being ground to a halt. How's the situation looking now? Has that improved in in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, the USDA uh, Secretary Purdue came out with some figures not not long ago saying that plants were at sort of 95% of capacity to a year ago, which means they've coped with the virus. There were some, there are some ongoing, I think, some issues, but and there were some very serious issues a few weeks ago uh, on on that. So they're back up to capacity. I mean, last week, the US beef slaughter, there was uh, 680,000 head put through the system here last week. And last year it was 670,000. So, so the beef side of things is up. Same on the pork side. Last week, I think about 2.6 million pigs were went for the system. And last year it was 2, 2.38. So they have regained a lot of ground. The COVID was a big thing in May when sort of 40% for the pork industry, 40% of processing was hampered. But everything's looking up. Having said that, um, there are still uh, apparently two million pigs log jammed in the in the system that maybe could face euthanasia uh, because they they're having a job to process them. And ironically, it's an issue. One or two people are looking inquisitively because um, 
U.S. pork exports are, are right up as well, and yet there's still pigs looking to be sort of uh, disposed of. They're regaining ground. The pork industry here is hoping for compensation for pigs they've had to take out of the system before being processed. They're hoping that the uh, a bill going through the system here will help with that. So that's where they are, really. They, I think they've caught up to a greater extent. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think trade just across the globe, really, it's um, it's been so fascinating, hasn't it? Just to see how different industries have, have reacted to the, the pandemic and the impact that's had on producers as well. Now, I know there's a, a pretty big election coming up over there and President Trump needs those rural heartlands, doesn't he? Do you think that's one of the reasons why he's so keen to get this deal done with the UK? I think the idea of a free trade agreement with the UK holds a lot of allure to the White House at the moment and the Trump administration. I think the agricultural component of that is important for the president, particularly if it's favourable towards US producers and farmers. The agricultural industry was incredibly important during his uh, election back in 2016 and looks to be the same way as we head towards the election in November of 2020. The president has signed agricultural deals over the past 12-14 months with significant agricultural impact. The China Phase 1 deal involves China buying US agricultural produce to the value of £32 billion a year over two years. There's the deal with Japan. There's USMCA, the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. And all told, the the value of those three deals alone is around £73 billion a year uh, purchases of uh, US agricultural produce and food. So so that's a big item. And the president... uh, when he signs these deals, he surrounds himself by the agriculture industry, the, the cattle industry is very visible, Stetsons and all, and it, it goes a long way to uh, help him shore up and keep the rural community in his corner. The president has had a, a rough time of late in the polls. He, he's down slightly against the Democratic candidate, Joe Biden, And so I think even maybe if a deal isn't able to be completed by November the 3rd, I think if a deal is in the offing and seem to be well on the way by then, I think that the the White House and the Trump administration would be very happy and they would take that. And obviously, you know, we're looking at Brexit to happen at the beginning of next year. It doesn't look like the transition period is going to be extended. I mean, you you mentioned Robert Lighthizer there. We, we caught a glimpse of the tough negotiating stance being taken by the US when uh, Robert Lighthizer, who is the um, is well, is the chief trade negotiator, I think, isn't he? He recently told Congress that the UK and Europe saw American food as unsafe, which he described as thinly veiled protectionism as it wasn't based on science and he said that using standards as protection has risen to a high art in Europe. He said I'm hopeful we'll work our way through these issues but on areas of American agriculture the US will not compromise. We either have fair access for agriculture or we won't have a deal with either the UK or the EU. John what do you make of that? I would say it's a view that's endorsed very much by the agricultural sectors here which are likely to be affected by a UK deal. I think it reflects how they're looking at things. You know, you talk to the pork or or, or the beef industry here, very much of that thinking that, um, you know, 
let the consumer decide that that is the mantra and the mantra of you know science-based decisions around trade to be science-based but yeah i mean he's a tough guy he he's delivered if you think about it like i just said i mean he's delivered in the last 14 months he and his team annual deal with 73 billion pounds a year these are big deals and so he's very seasoned. And what I would say is, too, I was talking to a senior Democrat official from uh, off the hill, uh, from the uh, from the House, a House official, and she said that there is um, respect for uh, Robert Lighthouse on both sides of the aisle, because in their opinion that he has reset U.S. trade negotiations after many years of inertia. And he's put a lot of bite back into U.S. trade negotiations. So it's not one of these things that it, it, it's just a solely Republican-based view of him, from what I gather. It's generally accepted that he's a, a force. And I think in one of the trade negotiations, this person said to me that he, one of the major negotiations this just happened, um, that he really did act, literally put his rear end on the line to get the deal through and, and it went through. So yeah, I, th- I think um, I think the UK underest- uh, you know you underestimate um, uh, Mr. Lighthizer at your peril. And obviously the, the standards issue we've just mentioned there, it's, it's just hot at the moment over here. And I mean, food and ag is always such an emotive subject when it comes to trade deals, isn't it? I remember Ted McKinney coming to the Oxford Farming Conference, which will be a couple of years ago now, and he was apoplectic about what he said was this constant bashing of US farm standards. There's so much talk of hormone beef and chlorinated chicken. What's the feeling like on the ground with the, with the livestock guys in the US? Are they sick of hearing about it as well? I think it probably does wear on them. I think, you know, some of the stuff that is uh, written and put in the media in the UK, some of it can be quite offensive. Some, some of the comparisons of uh, US feedlots to, um, I think the, there was one headline, Cowschwitz or something like that. And I, I think that headline in particular caused quite a bit of offence here. But they understand the situation. They, they know what they're up against. They're not entering into sort of, um, or getting their negotiators to enter into anything likely. They understand that there is a lot of difference. I think one of the things just on that, I was talking to Ted McKinney in February at the USDA Outlook Forum, which is their annual event here in, just in Washington, well, over the river in Arlington. And, and we were talking about actually about this visit that the HDB put on for the American sheep industry producers to come to the UK, which I was fortunate to be involved with and to, to bring some guys over in, uh, in June of last year. And it did an awful lot of good to, to get the industry talking to the industry. This isn't government bodies. It was just producers talking to producers. And I, I think there was a feeling here that it's a shame there couldn't be more of that going on. For example, with, you know, with the beef situation, that they couldn't talk to one another. It may not make any difference to the overall point of view if you're on two, two separate camps, but it, it's good to talk, for the industries to talk to one another, to at least establish some kind of channels. Uh, I wouldn't call them back channels, but you know, some communication between the industries on both sides of the Atlantic. And how much does US beef differ to UK produced beef in terms of things like standards, carbon footprint? I know that beef producers have to adhere to a, an assurance scheme, which is similar to Red Tractor, isn't it? Obviously, the biggest difference, the most obvious difference, is the fact that in the US they're able to use growth promoters and hormones as part of their production systems. In the UK, we clearly do not use those products in our beef production. The other thing is that the feedlot here is ubiquitous. 
97% of all beef, 97, 96% of all beef here goes through feedlots and only a small percentage, that 3 or 4% of beef is grass-fed. So those are two fairly notable differences. You talk about the red tractor and, and what they have here. On the beef side, they have the Beef Quality Assurance Scheme, which is a, a national programme and that was set up and designed to raise confidence for the consumer in the product and to uh, specify management procedures and techniques which are acceptable and and a commitment, uh, probably fairly importantly, a commitment to producing a quality product. So if you take the highly emotive issue of growth mode and hormones out of the equation, then there are maybe some elements of commonality between the US Beef Assurance Scheme and the Red Tractor Scheme. A small delegation was in the UK from the American beef industry in early March. They were over for a few days where they met with agencies and organisations to discuss the beef situation. And I gather that there were some comparisons drawn between elements of the Beef Assurance Scheme and uh, Red Tractor. Uh, for example, something uh, you know, on the, the lines of carbon and carbon sequestration. It was felt that on greenhouse gas emission and on carbon that the two beef industries in the UK and the US w- were not that far apart in terms of the numbers that are applicable to the various scores for emissions. So they were in the UK and while they were there uh, I gather that beef industry people had a good look at beef retail in the UK in food service and also in the retail situation itself. They obviously are interested as to where their product might sit. Now a lot of that is conjecture at the moment because who knows if ever they will have access. Time will only tell but they were certainly interested to get a sense of where access is granted under any kind of a trade agreement where their product may sit in the future. Do you think that they feel that this reticence over accepting US beef is a situation that they can overcome? Because I know US beef saw some big opposition from the South Koreans, didn't it, when thousands thousands of people marched in Seoul uh, protesting because of fears over BSE, but now US beef flows freely into that market. Do you think they're confident that they can kind of turn public opinion around on, on US beef? Well, I mean, I was talking to some cattlemen officials here that, that, you know, that were over on the trip, and, and I think they're not looking at a, at a short-term win in the UK. It, it would take perhaps take several years to obtain a, or, or to get a, a large market share. So that they're not thinking it's just they're just going to be able to, to go in, but that they feel that they've got a good story to tell about what they're producing. And I, I make no judgment. They, that, that, that's what they feel. And I think they feel that, you know, when people over time become aware of the product, that there may, there may be uh, some growth in the market for them as people become used to it and with, as it goes forward. And, and obviously UK beef is hopefully heading to the US soon, I've heard potentially by the end of this year. How are US producers feeling about that? Is, is there support for that? Well, here's the deal. It's an interesting one. And um, the US, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, is welcoming UK beef imports with open arms. They are very encouraging. They're, they they have, um, you know, they're interested to see it over here. They think it's a good thing that UK beef is coming over. And if you flip the coin a little bit, the, the very reason that, that the UK is able to, to look to export beef 
to the US again is because back in 2012 or 2013, legislation, the final BSE rule, USDA legislation was passed to enable beef to be imported into the US from countries previously uh, affected by BSE. And the National Cattlemen's Association wholeheartedly supported it on the basis that it, it was a science-based standard. So, yeah, I mean, you could argue that they were Turkish voting for Christmas in that they were, you know, actively campaigning for imports from competing nations. But that's what they felt. So you can kind of understand in a, in a, in a way why when they're getting some resistance to their product and they feel that, that it's perfectly safe on a, on a science-based basis, that they're not getting the same kind of welcome but i would say that they are they've been super helpful and and some of the points that they they, they make about our product our beef is it's a wonderful product it's got a story and as uh, people can see that union jack emblem is known from one coast to the other you can go into any store anywhere in the u.s and if it got a, U, a union jack on it people would recognize that they also uh, are, are very trusting of the uk so that would reflect on our produce it's well thought of and you know produced to a good standard so yeah i i, I think i think the uh, hdb of uh, projecting figures of about 66 million over five years for british beef i think that's very doable Ireland have beaten us to it in a way. They've started importing beef into the US since 2015 they started. And in the first year, they did £4.8 million worth. And then in uh, 2019, they did £17 million worth of beef coming in. So those figures are, you know, would kind of, the projected UK figures would kind of align with that. But no, it's very exciting. And, uh, you know, we all look forward to, to seeing British UK product here. CLA members own or manage around half of the rural land in England and Wales and run more than 250 types of businesses. The in-house professional advisory team offers members independent and impartial advice on every aspect of land ownership and during this Covid crisis the CLA has never been more important to landowners of any size. To find out more go to www.cla.org.uk now, many of our listeners will know celebrity farmer Jimmy Doherty for programmes like Jimmy's Farm, Food and Rats, and for teaming up with his pal Jamie Oliver on Channel 4's Friday Night Feast. Well, recently the two friends have hit the headlines as they waded into the debate on food standards, both making impassioned pleas to the government not to undermine British producers in the pursuit of new trade deals. Well, I spoke to Jimmy last week, just as Trade Secretary Liz Truss had announced the setting up of a new Trade and Standards Commission to explore ways to protect food production standards. And I asked him how he thinks the body will protect UK farmers from being undercut. But first, having diversified into tourism with his wildlife park and events business which hosts weddings throughout the year, I wanted to know how his farm in Suffolk had been affected by COVID-19. We Wildlife park and weddings and events and stuff, and that's been very difficult because obviously 
a certain amount of our stuff at Conferno, uh, and then a lot of them we can't because you know they've got to maintain the animals, and of course they don't have the income coming in. So it's been very difficult. But luckily, last week we opened on Thursday, so that's made a massive difference. We're going to talk about standards today. So we've reported in FG recently how you and uh, and also your on-screen co-host Jamie Oliver have spoken really publicly, haven't you, about maintaining the UK's standards in future trade deals. And we've we've heard Trade Secretary Liz Truss is, is going to finally establish a trade commission to help deliver this, which is something that the industry has been pushing for. Yeah, in principle. So hopefully that, that all comes off. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? And, and do you trust the government to do the right thing? And I'm always, I'm always thinking you're as good, you know, as good as your word. But uh, let's see when it's all done, signed, and delivered. Then we can really, really sort of uh, say it's, we've achieved something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, what's what's the real sticking point for you on on the standards issue? What what is it that you're campaigning for? Well, I think it's it's basically let's just no one's against trade, and let's get as well. It's not about sort of uh, closing down barriers. It's about it's about trade that's equal. Mm-hmm. That's all. I want to get anti-American, and I've been to America so many times. Visited farms, uh, you know, from California all the way to North Dakota and beyond. And it's, uh, and, you know, they've got some fantastic farmers out there. They produce, you know, food to the same standards of us, and some, you know, right to the top end. But mm-hmm. we won't be getting that food. <laughs> well, that's, the, that's not the mm-hmm. stuff that they're importing. I mean, that's for the, the, the domestic market and the, the people that require the high standards. research that came out just in the last couple of days actually from consumer watchdog which and it said that 95 percent of consumers said it was important for the uk to maintain existing food standards the public say they don't want substandard imports but do you think that when faced with the option and perhaps a cheaper alternative in, in supermarkets that they'll still choose british well it's that even could be more complicated if the Americans have their way because they almost want to change our labelling system as well. Yeah. I think our labelling system is too stringent. Why have you got country of origin on that? You don't need all the way it's produced on the labels. Well, why not? Mm. Why not? I think the, the, the big worry is that all the hard work that's gone in the last 20 years to produce one of the safest food systems in the world will be flushed down the drain. You know, mm. What are the options? You either go out of business or we lower our standards. Mm. If we lower our standards, we cut off one of you know, our biggest trading partner, which is Europe. Mm-hmm. So it's, cra- it's crazy to do any of that. Mm-hmm. And I've been to the States. I remember being in California and staying in a hotel and thinking, what does that ruddy smell? It's absolutely appalling. Lovely hotel. Even had a good tree there. And I was like, wow, look at all these states. They're incredible. Um, and it's only when I left and I went over the, 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 the big flyover and looked down and there was a, you know, nearly 100,000 cattle standing in a bare field mm-hmm. and a feedlot. And of course, they can produce their beef within 12 months. Because mm-hmm. you know, energy-rich concentrate, um, zero grazing, and regular growth promoters and, and spartics. Mm-hmm. You know, look at that compared to an extensive grass-based system. Uh, you know, it's, you can't compete with that. Mm-hmm. It, it takes much longer. Um, but with the consumer, with a, a steak that's 
half the price in the cellophane pack. I mean, what are you going to go for? Uh, and then we'll lose our, our food supply. But equally, they haven't got stringent measures in terms of traceability. Look, half is born, you give it a tag, it gets a passport, you can trace it all the way through the food system. And even some producers now, look at Marks and Spencer's, their beef system, um, they take DNA samples. And I've traced the animals that go into a burger from the burger back to the farm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've had the, the, the analysis come back and go, yeah, in that burger there's meat from uh, 12 different animals, tell you which farm they're on, what breed they are, even who were the parents of the cat. Can't do that any of the states. I mean, that's a very specific example mm-hmm. working with M&S. But the basic traceability that all our beef farmers uh, adhere to isn't in uh, the US. And as you just mentioned earlier as well, technology and, and is going to have a, a big part in this, isn't it? Because as you were saying, I think people do, it, well, they're increasingly wanting traceability, aren't they? That's something that they're looking for when, when they're shopping. So I guess things like technology really go hand in hand with that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and it'd be crazy to, to sort of uh, turn our backs on that kind of stuff. Mm. And, and, you know, look, we, we're, what, 50% self-sufficient food. We trade with countries around the world. You know, EU doesn't grow bananas. Uh, you know, we, we don't grow bananas in the UK. Of course, we trade, you know, rice, for example. We're absolutely right. But we adhere to certain standards, and it's important we carry that on. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of, of not doing that at the expense of farmers, it just seems, Mm. And this is madness. Mm. It just seems crazy because it's, it's much more than just a commodity. It's linked to our health, our environment, yeah. you know, and uh, yeah, it, it seems crazy. Absolutely. And part of our landscapes, isn't it, as well? People love to see, you know, grazing animals, don't they, in, in beef and dairy. And also, I guess, British food it's some of the most welfare-friendly, highest standards, the most affordable food as well. But do you think people value that, the, the value food and the, the work that goes into it and the, the landscapes that our farmers help produce? Do you think there's a, an education piece there and, and not just, you know, not just children, but that everyone really needs to be well, taught I the think, value I think of food? It demonstrates that, it's, oh, it's only people have already. I think it demonstrates people's understanding of the value mm. of it. It's almost like a line in the sand where the general public have gone, actually, if this can happen to our food system, what about the NHS? What about mm-hmm. everything else? And, uh, and I, I think there is definitely an understanding and appreciation because now the popularity of programs like Country File, um, there's endless programs about farming on TV now, uh, and, and, and where your food comes from, mm-hmm. from, from the field, from the processing, the factories, the landing on your plate. Yeah. yeah. There definitely is, needs to be a more of a reconnection Mm. with the consumers and understanding a lot of these processes. There, there has been a bit of a divorce over the years between you know, the farmers and the consumers, but mm. I think that, that gap has, has closed massively in the last 10, 15 years. What I would love to see, though, my way, I would have a, I would have a farm in every school, um, yeah. so the, the, or even link a farm directly with the school. So you, you, everyone talks about, you know, Woodland classrooms or the rest of it, there should be farm schools. So you go and you learn your chemistry, biology, your mathematics, your English, all based around you know how your food is produced. Mm. I'd love to do that. You know, I think it's a great idea. Schools rearing pigs and all that kind of stuff is really, really important. Um, but I think that beyond that, the, the bigger picture at the moment, I think what we are in danger of is this whole terrible COVID lockdown. Uh, for some instances, it could have been a smokescreen for the government to just quickly do a deal and get it out of the way. But I think actually this situation of COVID has really made people understand and appreciate our farmers. In a moment of crisis, they are an emergency service that kept us all fed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's why people signed this petition because, you know, 
and you know you see a lot of different farming systems and I know you're an advocate of free range as well what, what do you think makes the UK a world leader in food production and how do you think we can capitalize on on that brand I, I think you know in terms of world leaders I mean I always say if the Olympics would be winning gold medals <laughs> the farming Olympics. I think in terms of our traceability um, has always been a big thing mm-hmm. I think uh, you know there's, there's the high-level schemes, entry schemes when it comes to environmental management have always been important. I think in the future, biodiversity and the conservation of biodiversity is going to be really paramount because mm-hmm. we're learning so much more now that you know, the biodiversity we've got, um, it, it, it can be so much more improved and we need to maintain that to mm-hmm. keep the fertility of our soils going and all the ecosystems functioning that mm-hmm. all, all you know, healthy biodiversity gives us. So our, our farm has always been fluid and, and is able to change through these situations. I, I think that, you know, um, what makes it unique is because it's not like any other industry. You can't, you know, if you let the light of farming go out, you can't turn it back on again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not one of those things you can switch on and switch off. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the cornerstone of our civilization. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> and you, you were just talking earlier about how coronavirus has, has really highlighted the vital role that British farmers play in keeping the nation fed. And, and there does seem to be this renewed fondness in, in what the industry does. We're, we're celebrating the work of British farmers in our 24 Hours in Farming event, which is happening on August 6th. And I just wondered if, if you'd be able to um, pledge your support to that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that would I be think, um, yeah, the idea of celebration is something that we all need right now because it's all been so grim and yeah. terrible. I think celebrating what we got is really important because I think with this whole corona thing, it's made everyone appreciate what they've got around them, so be that the family or whatever else. Um, but I think the one couple of positive things that come out of this hideous situation mm. is that I think people are, are re-engaging with their food. I mean, everything from I've seen so many sourdough loaves being baked <laughs> on Instagram and everything else. But the idea of, you know, appreciating things, making the most of what you've got, getting out of the garden, growing your own, reconnecting with nature, the sense of community, mm-hmm. understanding how important farmers are, producing the food, our daily substances. Hopefully all those elements will remain after this terrible situation. Well, thanks for that, Jimmy. And to everyone else who's made their pledges to support 24 Hours in Farming, which starts bright and early at 5am on August 6th. This year, the event will shine a spotlight on food and we want as many pictures and videos as possible of delicious dishes you've cooked using British produce. Tell us what your favourite British dish is or share your family's recipe. We want to shout about all the wonderful ingredients we have on offer. And if you're a farm shop or you produce your own food, why not take a photo of it and share it with the world? It could be cheese, ice cream or locally made sausages. But whatever you're making, we want to know how it's made and why you love it. For more information and how to get involved, visit fginsight.com forward slash farm24. Take the pledge, share your story and get involved. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform to keep notified of new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. We'll be back next Tuesday, but from us at FG and the CLA, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well. Goodbye for now. <laughs>